improvements in communication and information technology have resulted in an increasingly interconnected global economy. In this episode, we discuss ways in which our classes can be modified to help prepare our students to productively participate in this global environment. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Blaise Scarnati. Blaise is a professor of musicology and the director of global learning in the Center for International Education at Northern Arizona University. Welcome back, Blaise. Thank you. Really glad to be back with you both. We're glad to have you here again. Our teas today are... I'm drinking my everyday green tea, Chinese Dragon Well Longjing. Very nice. I have English breakfast tea. I have a pure peppermint tea, so something plain. We've invited you back to talk about your work with global learning. Could you tell us first a little bit about your role as a director of global learning at the Center for International Education at NAU? Primarily, I work with faculty and departments, especially through our global learning initiative. And the global learning initiative, or GLI, is an across-the-curriculum global education initiative cited in all undergraduate programs and our liberal education program. It also explicitly uses co-curricular experiences, such as residence hall programming, department activities, community engagement, and so forth. And GLI established three interconnected and interdependent ideas that were all based and drawn upon longstanding campus values that were articulated as university-level thematic student learning outcomes around diversity education, global engagement, and sustainability. And so we kind of approached what global education can be in a very innovative way, rather than just like many institutions, privileging study abroad-based experiences. We really broadened it out and really defined it as diversity education, global engagement, and sustainability. And through that, when we were working to implement them at the department level, we really were asking departments not just to kind of hook up and reach up to those university outcomes, but rather recast them through the discourse in the discipline so that departments truly would own those outcomes rather than just attend to them. We went about this after a lot of campus conversation for several years, and it was adopted in 2010 by our faculty senate. Then we began to work with departments to implement and develop ways for them to think through to create department and program level outcomes around those three thematic university level ones. And we used sort of a backward design process developing the outcomes, developing assessment strategies, and then determining sort of scaffolded learning experiences across the major curriculum. And especially with emphasis on reimagining courses, not just tossing courses out or adding courses specifically. So how can you really get to the nub of modifying and internationalizing your particular courses? In 2012, GLI contributed significantly towards NAU, earning the prestigious Senator Paul Simon Award for Campus Internationalization, awarded by NAFSA. And more recently, we've been shifting away from working with departments and program curricula and focusing on individual faculty and their courses. 
And we do everything from individual consultations and dialogues about individual courses. But most excitingly, we've organized a lot of large-scale frameworks that we're calling collaboratives that bring together faculty, undergraduate, graduate students, particular programs, community members, all to kind of begin to think through how different courses, different programs can really more deeply internationalize their efforts. Jean-Paul Lauderach, the great peace organizer and theorist, has talked about large, flat, flexible, democratic platforms. And that's what we're really trying to pursue, because if you have a chance to listen to my other podcast with you all, we really focus on a lot of strategies that are based in community organizing theory and practice. And that's been my driving approach. I have a question, Blaise, based on some of the things that you've already mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of learning outcomes that you were using for backwards design related to individual faculty? I think sometimes we have an image of what that might mean, but might have difficulty applying it to different kinds of disciplines. Sure. The university-level outcomes are really quite broad-based, and they were rather intersectional in the sense that sustainability was also leaning into diverse spaces. We're talking about sustainable communities and so forth and cultures with an idea that it could accommodate, if we built these really large boxes that lean almost into one another like Venn diagrams, then that would offer kind of the maximal amount of space for programs and departments to dialogue and think through them. And really, the individual departments, it was quite, quite diverse. Some were very, very specific and targeted about really hard skills that they might need that would help them establish careers, be hired out in post-baccalaureate efforts, and others were a lot broader. In the humanities, for example, they were much more expansive. It was really quite diverse. So all ultimately address skills and competencies, but they were framed very, very differently. And the key point for us was that they were really rooted in disciplinary discourse. So they were truly real and meaningful for faculty in the departments. So they could use them as tools to help their program move and prepare their students to succeed in the worlds that their discipline works with students to place them successfully in. You do musicology, right? So are you in the music department at your school? Yeah, I'm a professor of musicology, music history. I do work with critical improvisation studies, popular traditions. I teach courses in reggae and country music and jazz. And yeah, and in music, we've approached them in sort of interesting ways. Sustainability comes about through For example, my wife is an oboist, and between global learning and lots of pressures with urban expansion in Africa, the wood that they source for that particular instrument has become quite scarce and rare. And there's also lots of issues about appropriating other cultures, resources, and so forth. So that's really driven a lot of internal dialogue about what are we doing, how can we do it, and what other alternatives might be available. Initially, of course, they went to oil-based solutions, you know, looking at polymers, but then they've been exploring other kind of sustainable woods and just ways to go about and reimagining and still achieving really high levels of performance and expressiveness using an instrument that will allow them to do that. But again, with alternatives, and there's been real efflorescence in the oboe world around having lots of different woods being used and explored. And our theater colleagues were looking also at green ways to save energy, reusing 
using non-toxic paints in their flats and in their staging. So there have been a lot of different ways, and some of it's quite strategic and it often overlaps with other ways, in terms of economic efficiency, given tight budgets and so forth. But at the end of the day, that's the reality. For example, we make and create and help to enable students to be effective performers and music educators. They're dealing with audiences and the world, and they have to come to terms with that. Within that is what I can contribute about uncovering lots of issues about how does music function in and as culture, and what are the resonance around whose music is being played, how's that identified, how is it commodified, who owns that music, who can speak for it. And it's a quite fraught history in the U.S. and in European traditions vis-a-vis world music, but this can help unpack a lot of social justice-focused issues within disciplines. Many pursue them overtly. Some, that's kind of bubbling a bit more in the background. So in music, it's been, in spite of popular culture's music, quite forward, art traditions and so forth, it's more akin to museum system in the visual plastic arts. So it's a little bit quite contested and in some ways a bit behind some other areas. So it's been useful to help disciplines turn over the field a bit and help to move themselves in productive directions. What other types of experiences have been used in other departments to try to reach this goal? Well, when the department itself has embraced the institutional imperatives, so the wind filling the sail is one where one has to complete it. It's baked into the program reviews that occur every six years internally and so forth. And at the same time, what's also driven a lot of it is student demand. Just one example, our Department of Philosophy went through this process in all dear friends, but it was a bit pro forma and, you know, wasn't necessarily the deepest engagement compared to some other departments. But a couple of years later, they came back in and wanted to re-examine and reestablish new outcomes for their program to really deepen their practice and their thinking. The discipline had changed and there was a huge student demand. Once they started opening opportunities and courses and uncovering these issues and linking it more close to the bone of what's gone on in philosophy courses, then students were really driving that change. So really kind of get to the nub of the matter when you start talking with a colleague and they're saying, well, how can I do this in my class? And that's always a very, very interesting conversation because in some ways it can be challenging because they may be frustrated. They see where things are, the state of the world, They're driven by their own passions and values, their disciplines also, and sometimes bringing that to bear within a curriculum that they may have inherited from someone else in the department over the years or a particular course, then how do they go about working their way through that? And that can be a very, very rich conversation. It sounds like that's the conversation we should have. So, Blaze, how can I globalize my classes? From my perspective, there are two ways to go about globalizing your course. First off, there's no need to scrap it, throw it away, and start over. No one's talking about doing that. There are two approaches. One is work within the existing outcomes for the course, and the second is designing additional outcomes for your course that specifically address why your students should be globalizing their work. That might be a formal outcome that you place if you have the latitude to add that to your course, or an informal one that can help you frame your thinking. So in the first one, working within the existing outcomes, we would have a conversation and frequently would just, first off, get off campus, go someplace and have coffee. 
he kind of break down the routine of this is me and my role, you as a faculty member in your role. I mean, I'm a faculty member too, but I come to them within this other frame and get someplace where you can begin to think and imagine and begin to talk about what have they always really wanted to do in the course around some of these issues. So how can you take those outcomes and find ways of moving the learning and moving and modifying learning experiences, projects, what you do, what you read, what you think about, what you discuss in the class, so that it has a more global dimension. And some of that can be shifting readings, shifting the locus of activity or thinking through a problem and where it's cited, and then helping your students that may not have a lot of experience in that discipline thinking about those things. So helping them understand how you really think and work within that discipline with these issues. So the first one is the easy one. Where can you substitute? Where can you supplement? Where can you modify? What can you change? The second one, it kind of gets at things at a deeper level and, and probably something that's more impactful. So if you design your own course's outcomes, you're really going to have to think through, why are you doing this? What will it enable your students to do? To what purpose? And given the restrictions you might have, that might be just lurking in the background, helping you make decisions about what you want to alter, what new sorts of ways of doing and knowing that you want to explore with your students, up to you just add it as another outcome and discuss it with your students as you walk through the learning outcomes in the first day when you go through the syllabus quickly and begin to consider what are we going to be doing in this class and why. When faculty have bought into this, how have they responded? Most are really, really enthusiastic, and people tend to seek this out if they're aligned to the overall goals of the project. In the early days, sometimes we had reluctant departments or departments that there wasn't a working consensus to move forward in any particular direction, and those were more difficult conversations. These days, generally working with individuals or departments that they're highly aligned with this. So it's a matter of what more can we do? How can we do that? And the restrictions aren't about globalizing the course or trying to internationalize different activities or projects, but often it's how can we do this with little to no additional economic support? So we can't buy resources. We can't send our students necessarily independently out. And then how can we expand where our curriculum is? And I can introduce them to colleagues in the Center for International Education. And we operate not by using a service where our students pay and go abroad using a services infrastructure like many places anymore. We have individual departments have reciprocal agreements with other universities that our students would go and take a range of courses in a study abroad experience, and they would come back, they would transfer right in, students are not going to be missing any time in their progression towards a degree. They pay our own internal tuition, so their scholarships and financial aid cover those expenses. We also have a very generous level of support for travel for those students in need, especially in economically challenged groups. So there's a lot of infrastructure that the department or the individual faculty member may not have. But we can begin to put people together in a broader network to help them as an individual faculty member achieve their aspirations or collectively as a program or our whole department. Oftentimes, it's frequently very, very exciting because if you kind of are talking at that level of what have you all wanted to do, then let's figure out a way to make that happen. That's a very catalytic 
encounter and a catalytic discussion because it's full of possibilities. I always try to shift the conversation to what else is possible. What have you never had a chance to do? Don't worry about the thousand and one reasons not to do it. They're always there, but let's figure out what that is. Then we'll go and figure out ways to remove the barriers or to provide the resources if we can. So it's usually a very satisfying work and it's usually a very uplifting conversation because people take that energy inside and really begin to spin it. So they're lit up and how excited they are infects others in their networks and groups. And it can kind of feed off of one another. And much like we were talking about in our earlier conversation, if you get enough activity going and you begin to saturate the airspace as much as you have the latitude to do, you can create a locus of gravity that starts to pull others in. And that's just based upon your active network of folks that are collaborating together. Can you talk about some specific examples that you think are really powerful implementations of globalization of a class or a curriculum? Sure. One early example that I used to open up conversations with departments, because you usually would go in and do a department meeting, and here's what this project GLI is all about, and then how do you do it? That's the next question. One really great example was out of our civil engineering department. We have a big school of engineering of civil, electrical, and so forth. And they often have core courses that all of the different threads within civil engineering would take together. And one of those courses had a bridge building project. So it had two major components. One was you need to design the bridge. So you need to do the mathematics, the engineering of a bridge that'll span a particular distance, that'll carry a particular load, and then the materials and construction management side of that. So then how do you actually create that bridge? So it was actually a semester-long project. It was quite complex. On the surface, it sounds fairly easy, but in its very real world, because that's what these students would do when they leave. And they would join a construction corporation, and they would be building bridges and other types of projects. Civil engineering wanted to globalize that project. They thought this was one place where they could really make an impact. The faculty cited the bridge-building project in Kenya. And that's a country where we have a lot of reciprocal programs and our engineering students are working and taking courses and working in programs there. So it still addressed the very technical side of what was needed in the course. So they still design and engineer a bridge that carries load, that spans a particular distance. But now that it moved the construction of materials management into an international frame and in a particular country where there are infrastructure issues. How do you ship and transport or source locally materials? And again, that actually aligns absolutely with what their students need because their graduates are getting hired by major international corporations that build projects all over the world. So that actually gave them a richer set of tools that came out of that learning experience. So they accomplished everything they needed, plus they were able to internationalize it in a way that helped students develop tools that were even more necessary and actually more salient to their success in the future. I think that's a very, very quick, powerful little story that gets it. How can you take something and make some changes to it that actually brings more to it? So it doesn't just globalize, but it actually opens up a set of possibilities and experiences that are multiplied. So it's not just, here's one way 
that we can do this to globalize this learning experience. But then how can we, at the level of outcomes, truly, how can we develop a richer set of tools that our students can use to succeed as they go out and seek to build a richer life? Oftentimes, inertia and perhaps a department, for example, or a group of faculty, they may think it's a good idea, but they don't see a ready, quick access point. Civil engineering, they saw it almost immediately. And they said, well, we can do this. And then it led to, well, what if we do more of this? How about if we went here as opposed to there? Just that they moved down the road pretty rapidly. For example, with physics and astronomy, we had a chair that was actually part of our planning group that helped design the whole global learning initiative. And she was very, very interested in wanting to help move the department in this direction. And they were quite split. And it wasn't just the astronomers versus the physicists, but it was actually a more generational split. And that was just peculiar to their department at the time. So there were a lot of very senior gray lions that really didn't want to go in this direction. They thought it was counterproductive. They thought it was beside the point. And so that opened a lot in a very long conversation. And over five years or so, there was some change, retirements and so forth. And younger faculty and then the rising senior faculty began to have conversations about what it can be within their context between physics and astronomy. And we're lucky. We're adjacent to a number of indigenous nations, the Navajo Nation, which is large as all of New England, for goodness sake. Within that's the Hopi Reservation, downstate, various Apache groups. And it's a very rich international space that way. So colleagues in physics and astronomy started working with colleagues in the community college system on the Navajo Reservation. And so they started bringing in traditional knowledge holders. So within astronomy, they started offering courses around indigenous cosmologies. So they were actually helping their students to think in very different international ways, using different frames for how do you conceive the founding of the cosmos and the workings of all that is out there. Even the most rigorous, focused astronomer that is working on radio astronomy or some other variation across their wide range of disciplinary practices, then they're beginning to open up what's possible, how and what does it mean to be talking about these things. And when I know that I'm talking about it through my contemporary U.S international sort of frame, that's one frame. And there are other ways that might be useful to think about the facts, the activities that we do, and what the information we receive. And then what does it mean to put it together in an argument and an explanation? And by thinking through other cultural dimensions, that expands their ability to do that imaginatively, creatively. I come out of the arts so I'm kind of hardwired to want to do things in very improvisatory, creative ways. And from my perspective, the more we can all think about how can we be catalytic and creative in our own disciplinary work, I think that's the exciting place because it shifts you not from the core to the periphery, but oftentimes to willfully and intentionally walk to that edge where your discipline is interacting with all these other disciplines. And that's a very fruitful and very exciting place to be, because that's where new knowledge can come about really quickly as you begin to fuse and think differently and expanding what's assumed. For me, that's personally and intellectually just very, very exciting work. 
And believe me, I can't follow the details of my colleagues in physics and astronomy when they start unpacking things. But I can get and be really lit up by the direction that they're going and their excitement and what they're seeing as possibilities. Because once colleagues find that this is a fruitful path, then that leads much like we found with physics and astronomy and certainly the example from engineering. That leads to what else is possible. So you just keep opening and opening and opening. And that's where we all want to be, especially in a time when most of our institutions are getting squeezed in terms of economics. That's a very empowering place to be. You've mentioned this is a fruitful place for new knowledge. That seems like a good transition to thinking through the lens of students and seeing the world in a different way. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the student impact that you've seen or maybe even a specific student or a specific story that might help us envision how this plays out? I work with faculty who work with the students, but I just get that energy and how they're able to create new things. And then especially as I see colleagues being able to morph and continually transform what their course is. So that it's not just, we take something static, we're going to do some window dressing and job done, and that's good for another 20 years. But once you start moving the pieces, that energy, that motion, that kinetic sense just keeps going and flowing. And students are really excited about it. And what I hear are those more collective pressures to do more. And we have some assessment, too, that we had over 80% of our undergraduate programs in just three years out of 91 of the programs at the time complete the program-level GLI process, come up with outcomes, assessments, and a curricular map of learning experiences, study abroad, because what we did was we talked study abroad and asked the departments to position a semester in the program in their sequence of courses where students could go abroad take courses at institutions that they have confidence in, courses that they're taking, and come back so they're not losing any time towards the degree. And we saw a 136% increase in the number of students going abroad over eight years between 2011 and 2018. And also those students that went abroad, I owe this all from my colleague Angelina Palumbo, the director of education abroad here in the center. But students that go abroad also have a 87% graduation rate, which is about more than 10% higher than our average graduation rate, which is not bad, but still, that's quite impactful. Everything from the example when I was talking about colleagues in philosophy, where once they started opening up some of these issues and giving voice to them, their students were asking for more. That's sort of the level that I encounter. Was the expansion in study abroad programs due to the global initiative? Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. We had a new senior international officer using the jargon, SIOs, Harvey Charles, who was a really, really innovative colleague. He was our SIO. I was working with him. We brought a whole bunch of people together. Basically, he established a presidential task force to help to internationalize the campus. The president was behind that. And working with Harvey, We brought from two or three of us that were focused on curriculum out of that task force. We invited 40 colleagues to come together to draft this global learning initiative. And part of that was a concerted effort to expand study abroad. But what had been holding it back was the very things that we were able to address through the curricular side of GLI, that there was many programs didn't have a targeted semester where their students could study abroad without falling behind. 
They didn't have any particular countries or institutions that they had reciprocal relationships and confidence in their curricula. So it was all at the same time, everything coming together. But the details of how many positions were added, it actually tripled the number of positions working in education abroad. But again, that was in response to the huge increase of number of students that were going from our campus. And then also they were busy recruiting international students. We have a couple of thousand international students on campus. And that's other parts of the infrastructure within the center that GLI wasn't directly related to or focused upon. You talked a little bit about economic barriers being a barrier for faculty and making change. Did you come across any other barriers other than maybe you talked about generational differences too? Yeah. Were those main barriers or did you see faculty coming up against some other barriers that they had to overcome? Some disciplines are just really deep. Their disciplinary ways of thinking and knowing, they're highly aligned, right? They're there, sociology, politics, and international affairs. There really wasn't much of a discussion in terms of they're already doing a great deal of it, then let's maybe see what else is possible. For a lot of other individual faculty, when we talk to them, or programs that are thinking about picking this back up, it's kind of a reluctance, either like we've talked about before, not sure how to go about moving and making further change, and or this is a time when everybody is really stressed. On our campus, we've lost 60% of state funding in a decade, which is a radical truncation of our support. We've shifted to pretty much tuition-based funding, and that's created enormous pressures. The level of tenure density has plummeted, so there are a lot of lectures and a plurality. That's a one-year non-tenured position here on our campus. It's created a lot of internal pressures and schisms and issues. And many faculty don't have the additional emotional capacity to want to willfully step forward and say, I want to create more change and uncertainty and chaos in what I do. When I was referring a little bit earlier to inertia, it's not just intellectual laziness. It's often just exhaustion. What's happening nationally, I think, has been exhausting many in the academy, in our politics, the level of incivility that's increasing and rising on campus. Arizona, you just have to have one person agree in a public forum so that you can videotape. And that could be the person behind the iPhone if they're agreeing to do it. And that's all that's needed. And of course, these courses and classrooms are public spaces. So we've had lots of faculties, classes being put up and being pilloried by different websites, various political perspectives, and some of it's been in the Chronicle over the last couple of years. So it's been a challenging environment. There are many things going on that are tapping people out. But for me, what has been the thing that always allows us to continue to succeed, if you're talking about very mechanical things, or this is an obligation, we need to achieve these program outcomes, that doesn't stir many people's souls. But If you actually have in advance thought about how can you position your initiative so that it's focused and grounded in the values of your community, your literal community or your institution, then people can connect in ways that aren't just focused on disciplinary interest or compliance. You're tapping into their heart and what they care about as a person and what motivates them. Again, sustainability in my own discipline of music, there's a discourse there 
and there are ways that one can think through it. But those colleagues, and I count myself, that are very passionate about the future of the planet, we're motivated to do much, much more. And we'll seek that out. So amid all the turmoil and depletion of energy and the exhaustion, if you can find ways to shift that conversation into this catalytic space that talks about possibilities, that taps into what people believe and what they value and what they care about deeply, then you're feeding that conversation from a place that will enrich and nourish rather than just take away exhaust and grind you down into submission. We always end with the question, what are you doing next? Well, what I'm doing next is continuing on and more and more explicitly going back to the well of community organizing methods, strategies, and theory to help us come together collaboratively. For me, faculty on our campus, and I know a lot of places feel increasingly radically disempowered, either by state legislatures, distant boards, priorities that may be economically driven or politically motivated that are not aligned with where many faculty are themselves. And we tend to wait until we grow quite gray for change to come from the top. So I'm a firm believer of coming together with colleagues to focus on what's possible, what can we do together, and actively doing that. And Good administrators will be happy to jump in front of that train and take all the credit they want. God bless them. But just what can we do together to make this a better place, a richer educational space for our communities and for our students? That's largely pretty much everything I'm doing. Of course, presenting, publishing, writing, and more writing, but like everybody else, that's the thing that really kind of keeps me lit up. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you for joining us. That was a very good discussion. Very much appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Brittany Jones and Kiara Montero.